We're looking for those likes and we're looking for that approval. And we're not like just being. And if you just be who you want to be, your life is going to be so much easier than trying to like curl yourself into a pretzel that fits into this image that other people are projecting on you. Welcome to the Anonymous Third Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura. If you've been hesitant to do something or generally have a fear of what people think about you, you're looking for some solid practical tips, then you're going to love this episode. It's my true pleasure to have a conversation with Maysoon Zayed, who's a well-known comedian, actress, speaker, and disability advocate, to name just a few of the things she's into. I saw her TED Talk, I Got 99 Problems, But Palsy is Just One, a few years back, and I really loved her story. I invited Maysoon to speak at a conference I was hosting, and she was terrific. I wanted to catch up with her this week, and I found out very quickly that she has not slowed down at all. In fact, since we last spoke, she's taken on at least a dozen more projects, including a role on the soap opera General Hospital. Today, Maysoon has me on my toes. She breaks down how she created and went after her dreams and what some folks told her along the way. I can't wait for you to hear the end where I ask her for advice and what she says will blow you away. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, comment, but for now, please enjoy my conversation with Maysoon. Hey, Maysoon, welcome to the Not Almost There podcast. I'm excited to be here. I have no idea what this podcast is about. I usually don't do podcasts, but I had so much fun at Refuel that I couldn't say no to you. So here I am. I really appreciate that and your comments about Refuel. It was great to have met you then. Not Almost There is simply about pushing your limits and understanding that you have so much more potential in life, which you've obviously proven many times throughout your career. And that's what I'm really excited to talk about today. I think I lacked potential. Am I a shining example? Because you were like, that girl's going nowhere. And you're like, oh my God, she actually made it. This is incredible. Uh, She's all the way on the Z list. I'm going to make you sweat this whole podcast. I have the attention span of a squirrel being chased by a dog. You got it. So I'll just jump right into questions. (laughs) As a teen, a choreographer told you, find another dream. How did those words change your life? So just a little quick background. Um, I have cerebral palsy. It's a neurological disorder that, in my case, makes me shake all the time. Um, I'm mobile. I walk. There's no shame in not walking. I just happen to walk, but I'm pretty limpy. And my parents couldn't afford physical therapy, so they sent me a tap class. Um, instead. So I was born and raised in Cliffside Park, New Jersey, which is right over the George Washington Bridge. You can like see Broadway from my house. And so I was a tap dancing kid that was always getting standing ovations, had no idea I was getting standing ovations because I was the inspirational disabled kid. I thought I was really good. And I think I kind of was. Anyway, I dreamt of dancing on Broadway. That's what I wanted to do. And I went to like a Broadway dance camp that was run by all these Broadway divas. And they asked us what our dreams were. And one of the other girls was like, I want to be a unicorn. And they were like, you go, girl. And then I was like, I want to tap dance on Broadway with Savion Glover and bring in the noise, bring in the funk. And um, the diva said to me, girl, you're a cripple. Find another dream. So I did, and my new dream was to be on the daytime soap opera General Hospital. And 20 years later, 
I achieved both of those dreams because I ended up dancing on Broadway um, in 2010 and then again in 2019, right before the world ended. And I'm on General Hospital. And it's interesting. It should have made me feel defeated and it just didn't. Like I took find another dream the wrong way. I was like, hmm, maybe they feel like the show is going to close before I get to that age. Let me pick something, you know, that's a little more suited to me. I didn't realize that they were telling me that I couldn't. They were just like, that's not a good idea. And then when I became an adult, I realized what had happened. But like in that moment, I wasn't, I didn't react the way I should have. I wasn't like horrified that she could, that it was actually a he, that he called me a cripple in front of all the other dancers. I wasn't defeated. I was just like, hmm, what could my other dream be? I don't know why I reacted that way. I have no, no good reason. I know along the way you've uh, you've been called inspirational a lot from <laughs> a lot, and you don't like that. Why why don't you like to be called inspirational? Okay, so if I inspire you because your dream in life is to become a stand up comic, you come to my show and you're like, I'm inspired. I'm going to take a comedy class. I'm going to go to my first open mic because May soon inspired me to chase this dream. I'm down like a clown. Be inspired. What I don't enjoy is the fact that often when people talk about disabled people, they're like, you're so inspirational. And what they're really saying is, if I was like you, I would kill myself. And they're like inspired by the fact that I got married. Like it shouldn't be inspirational that someone who's an adult gets married. Like that's not a goal. That's not something that like you should cheer for. So what I don't enjoy is being labeled inspirational for simply existing. But if I inspire you, you know, to have long black Kardashian hair, then go for it or to put an evil eye to protect you from jealous people on your wall. That's fine. So it's really what is inspiring you. Is the mere fact that I exist with a disability what's inspiring you? I don't want to be your inspiration. But if it's what I do or how I live my life or like the Dolly part and I'm trying to be in the world, then be inspired. When you were younger, you mentioned you wanted to be... I am younger. I'm currently younger. <laughs> you you definitely are younger. But um, when you were a little girl and you were in, into choreography and dancing and you had a dream... How did you go from that dream to wanting to be in General Hospital to get in, into comedy? You know, it's so interesting. I just somehow knew I wanted to be a performer. And I understood that both those things, that being a dancer and being on Broadway and playing. I also played piano because my parents couldn't afford occupational therapy. So I played piano. So I was just like a born performer. And I knew I wanted to perform. And at the time that I fell in love with General Hospital, I was five years old, way too young to be watching a soap opera, Robin was on, Kimberly McCullough, and she was the same age as me. So it was like, I saw a kid on TV and I was like, ooh, I'd like to be a kid on TV. And then I saw Robin with Stone and I was like, oh, I would love to be in love with Stone. And then I saw Robin with Jason. And I was like, I really just need to be on General Hospital. That's what needs to be happening. So I think it was the fact that Robin was my age, that she had dark hair. And there was something I saw in myself in her because again, I had some weird disconnect from my disability. So like at the same time that I was falling in love with General Hospital, an amazing actress with cerebral palsy named Jerry Jewell was on the facts of life. 
It was a sitcom. I and remember I didn't that. Identi- yeah. yeah, I didn't identify with her at all. Like I didn't I didn't realize we had the same disability. I wasn't like, I want to grow up to be Jerry. I was like, I would like to be Brenda on General Hospital. So it was just I saw myself on that show. So so how did you get into comedy then along the way? So I I went to Arizona State University. I studied theater. I came back to New Jersey. I start auditioning. I walk into auditions, and before I even speak, some people were like, no, 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 no. Like, they wouldn't even let me talk. Like, the concept of a disabled person auditioning for a role that was not disabled was completely foreign to these people. And then I got realistic. It's like I turned on the TV. I didn't see people who looked like me. But where I did see them was in the world of stand-up comedy, very specifically Richard Pryor. He was a person of color, and he also shook, and he had a filthy mouth like a Jersey person. And, like, I kind of saw myself there, and then I I widened that circle, and I got really into seeing, like, John Leguizamo's one-man show and Whoopi Goldberg's one-woman show. And I found, like... The way to be a misfit from the island of misfit toys, someone who doesn't look like Jennifer Aniston, who's a great woman, God bless her, but doesn't like look like that picture of perfection. They were all comedians. Like at the time, Roseanne Barr was not a bigoted nightmare. And she was like another person who, even though she wasn't disabled, she was heavy set. She wasn't necessarily pretty. And where I saw the people who looked like me was in comedy. So I marched into Caroline's Comedy Club on Broadway, which is like this circle place of my life. And I took a stand-up comedy class and the comedy class culminated with a live show at Caroline's. And at that show, I got hired for my first paid gig and I was a paid comic from that moment on, and I completely skipped the struggle. So like, as a comic, you're supposed to struggle and do like these horrible shows for seven Swedish drunk tourists in the middle of the night. I was like, I was a paid comic by my third show. Five years into it, I had a Live Nation tour that I was co-headlining that was like sold out at thousand seat theaters. And now 20 years into my stand-up comedy career, it's finally opening the doors that I had hoped it would open when I became a comic. But along the way, I became a comic. So like now everything else is just gravy. Like I'm not like, I want to win an Oscar. I'm like, I want a Netflix comedy special. Like I love being a comedian. It's my number one job. That is great. So what what projects are you working on now? I'm I'm a cartoonish. I'm about to rattle off my projects and it's cartoonish. And I just want you to know that it's because disabled women have to work six times harder than white men. So uh, cisgender, able-bodied, straight white men to be specific. So one, I'm a stand-up comic, so I've been doing virtual shows from my basement. Uh, my last live show was March 4th until February 13th, which was the first time I got back on live stage at Stress Factory in New Jersey. So I'm a touring stand-up comic. I am currently writing a um, 10 to 12-year-old's comic book series for Scholastic called Book of Bayan, where the central character is a disabled child of color who even in the fantasy world, she's not healed because I thought it was important to show a disabled kid that stays disabled. That's not like magically healed in the fantasy world. I am hosting a docu-series 
called Welcome to the Disco. And I can't tell you what network it's going to be on, but it's going to be big. And uh, <clears throat> it's a docu-series where I travel across America. It's like Anthony Bourdain, no reservations, but instead of eating food, I eat disabled people. And I'm um, starring in and wrote a chick flick called US 99 that set the week between Christmas and New Year's Eve in 1999 that just got um, signed for a deal that hopefully we're shooting in the summer and in the fall, I'm going to be teaching a class at a very famous Ivy League college that I also can't say the name of because they're going to make a big deal and announce it in March. Um, and I'm the mother of a cat named Beyonce. What are you doing? Not nearly as much as you. <laughs> wow. So it sounds oh, like... and I wrote a half-hour episode of a seven-part series for British television about the seven deadly sins, but I'm not in that. I'm even more honored to have a few minutes of your time today. You're, <laughs> you're a very active woman. Uh, so it sounds like you're living the American dream. I heard you say once... No, I'm that... living the American dream for about one month. It's yeah. been an American nightmare well, for the past four years because I'm a Muslim. It was very, very hard living in this country the past four years as a Muslim woman. It's been really difficult. I know. I'm sorry to bring you down. But it's been really difficult the past year as a disabled person because people with disabilities were really sacrificial lambs in COVID. We heard a lot of people being like, don't worry. It's okay that people die. They're just people with pre-existing conditions. And that's like us. So I wasn't living the American dream until about February 1st, and then it started looking good. Well, I'm, I'm glad it started, <laughs> but I bring that up because I heard you say, I think it was a podcaster on something that uh, nobody believes the American dream unless you live in a nightmare. Do you yeah. remember saying that? Yeah, and, yeah. And I thought yeah. that was very profound because I, I do believe context is important in life. Can you expand on that and what that meant to you? You said it. Yeah. And I guess, I guess, you know, I just relived it again, right? Because coming out from the other side of this COVID nightmare reminds me like how privileged and lucky I am to be living the American dream. When I, when I talk about that, it's because, so my parents are Palestinian and I spent every summer hanging out in the West Bank, which is like the occupied territory. And like when you're in a refugee camp and you see that like, education is not an option. Self-care is not an option. Like heat and water are not an option. When you look at the life I could have lived if I was born in Sudan or if I was born in, you know, Ecuador or Guatemala right now, I, I wouldn't have any of the privileges and access that I have in the United States. So even though I'm like, it's a nightmare. They didn't want to put disabled people on ventilators. I also live in a country where I can vote and where I can petition politicians to change those things and where I can get meetings with, you know, like my congressman. And I was blessed and lucky to work on disability policy federally. And so even when this country disappoints me, I know that like there but for the grace of God go I, that when I watch, there was this amazing clip on John Oliver about an uh, Arab girl that loved Days of Our Lives. And she was a refugee that had to like cross the Mediterranean with a wheelchair. And she made it to the other side. I'm telling you, dude, I would be dead. You know, so I think that's the American dream is the fact that Yes, we're dealing with 
racism and bigotry that we didn't necessarily see at this level in my lifetime. But I always think it's Star Wars, right? There's a light side and a dark side. And the light always wins. Oh, yay, my cat is coming down. I hope she makes an appearance. <laughs> I know when you were you were growing up, and I'm sure you still are close to your, your family, What what's something that... Um, that you learned from your your mother or father when growing up that you have uh, taken with you now? So, I say my, my dad is a teddy bear and my mom's a tyrant. So my dad was a person who cheered for the underdog, who always uplifted you, who always believed in you, who did wacky things that would just bring you happiness even though they weren't necessary. And my mother is like a no mercy sensei from Karate Kid. Like she doesn't believe in failure. She will like I was on 60 Minutes. I was like, Mom, did you watch it? And she was like, your hair looked terrible. And she was right. And the next time it looked better. And so like I always think that my mom prepared me for Hollywood because there's nothing any producer or director could say to me that could be more harsh than what she has said to me my whole life. But like. I love her for it. I'm super happy that I didn't have someone who coddled me and who told me that like participating was enough. It was a really good balance that my dad like taught me to dream big and fight hard. And my mother was like, and if your dream turns into a nightmare, find another dream because we don't believe in quitting. And like, there's, she's just no mercy. I call her mommy dearest without the hangers. My mom makes me walk three miles a day, every single day, rain, snow, like a hundred degree weather. And in the before time, I used to tour 200 days a year. So I would get a break. But now it's been like every single day. So I'm basically like a soldier marching behind her. <laughs> so you walk with her every day? Every single day. And we walk on opposite sides of the street since the pandemic started. And it's really funny because she criticizes me the whole walk, which is like a really good motivator. It makes you walk fast. But now she has to scream the criticism across the street so the neighbors get to enjoy it too, which is really fun. And my dad's chilling in heaven. He passed away in 2012. I'm sorry. Oh, God, so am I. The earth is a very boring place without him. Every, like, week, at least once, I go, oh, it's so boring without him. That's, like, the biggest thing I feel is it's just boring without him. But, but, God rest his soul, he would have been a nightmare during COVID. He would have totally still hung out with people. He was too gregarious. He wouldn't have thought it was a hoax. He would have just been like, if it's my day to die, I shall die. I know we have to wrap up in a few minutes here, so I have a, f a few uh, speed questions for you. Nice. I'm not timing you. No, I like speed. It's fun. All right. One, who's your favorite uh, actor and actress? That's a really tough one. My favorite actor right now is Dan J. Levy from Schitt's Creek, and my favorite actress is Julie Louis-Dreyfus. All right. Favorite movie? The Outsiders, Essie Hinton, Martin Scorsese. Nice. Is that, is that your favorite book as well? Mm-mm. What's no. your favorite book? My favorite book is The Teddy Bear Habit. It's right behind me. It's by James Collier, The Teddy Bear Habit. It's about a kid who's afraid and he needs his teddy bear every time he goes on an audition. So he hides it inside his guitar so no one can see it. 
I've not heard of that book, but it's I will such it a good book. It was only printed once in 1970, but it's worth a read, and you can find it online. What's your favorite, most unimportant thing to do? I watch so much freaking TV. It's ridiculous. I watch like 18 hours of TV a day. I'm absolutely ridiculous about it. Uh, what about I'm it? watching a TV above my monitor as I talk to you right now. Nice. Apparently, nice. Joe Biden's going to build stuff in America. That's what the TV says. <laughs> I love Bob's Burgers specifically. Oh, that's hilarious. I love it. What about your favorite performance or one you're most proud of? Mine? Mm-hmm. I got to do stand-up comedy for Muhammad Ali in Washington, D.C., and my dad was in the audience, and that was my most proud moment. What is something we wouldn't know about you, aside from how much TV you watch? I'm an amazing driver. Like, if I wasn't a comic, I'd probably be a NASCAR driver. I love driving. I'm an amazing driver. I drive a BMW X4. I'm not um, humble. I love it. (laughs) It's red. (laughs) You have over 10 million views on your TED Talk. How do you feel about that? I feel nothing. I'm missing the gene that's like impressed by anything that doesn't make me money. So if I got a dollar for every one of those views, I would feel amazing. But I, I, sh- I guess I should feel something. I feel nothing. Well, I'm sure that's, <laughs> that's let the world know who you were a little bit. I think that's how, how I found you a few years back. And we... Uh, yeah. So the world knew me from like several different places though. So like there are people who know me from the TED Talk and they're like, that was the moment. And I'm like, no, actually the moment was when I went on a Live Nation tour. Like that was kind of the moment where I was like on stage in, you know, Nashville, Tennessee in front of 35,000 people. And I was like, ah, but also um, I was on Countdown with Keith Oberman from 2010 to 2012. I was a full-time contributor on that show. And so many people who recognize me, recognize me from that. But the thing I'm recognized for the most hands down is General Hospital. And I've only been on six episodes because the pandemic hit when I was supposed to go um, back and film again. And it's where I'm recognized from the most. It's what I get the most fan mail from. It's what I have the most follows from. So... I think that the TED Talk put me on the global stage in a way that other things didn't. It was translated into 47 different languages. It opened the door to me doing shows in India and Luxembourg and Australia and Kuwait. Um, and I don't think I would have had any of that without it. But, you know, TED doesn't pay and I'm super bitter about the whole thing. I could see that. I mean, you're, you're driving a, a lot of attention to Ted. <laughs> yeah, you're driving a lot of attention to Ted. So I could, I totally see how, how you would feel like and that. And they don't pay, the, they don't pay your speakers. And it's really like arduous. It's very hard. It's hard to get picked. It's hard to navigate being there. It's, it's so much work and they don't pay the speakers and you don't get any residuals. And it's all an exposure thing. And I just think like, again, like I'm privileged and lucky. And I was able to go to San Francisco for four days to do a TED talk. But like the majority of disabled people I know can't afford stuff like that. So I, I, I think it's an amazing platform and I hope that their model evolves. So that includes compensation for speakers. What, what is, um, 
What is something you could leave the audience with? You've obviously over, overcame a lot in your life, persisting through getting these auditions and acting and doing all of these things. What What's some advice that you would give someone struggling to make it in comedy or acting or any of the other so amazing things my, you're doing? My advice for everybody, regardless of your dream or your ability, is don't let strangers define you. Only you get to define you. Pick the person that you want to be and be that person. If like nobody believes in you and nobody cheers for you, cheer for yourself. I think that in a society that's so inundated with social media, we're looking for those likes and we're looking for that approval. And we're not like just being. And if you just be who you want to be, your life is going to be so much easier than trying to like curl yourself into a pretzel that fits into this image that other people are projecting on you. Right on. With that, that's uh, my alarm ringing. Yeah, <laughs> telling no. me I have to go. <laughs> thank okay. you so much for this. May soon, thank you. It's great to uh, great to see you. Good luck with everything. Take a deep breath and enjoy the process. You're going through a lot right now. You're an amazing yeah, woman. Yeah, there's so much going on. Please make sure that you send me the link so that I can share it with all of my people. And then send your people maysoon.com because Beyonce the cat didn't make an appearance and they need to see her. Yep. And everyone check out your new book, Find Another Dream, amongst everything else you're doing. Yeah, find another dream. All right, Maysoon. Thank you so much for being here. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Anonymous Third Podcast. I'd like to give a huge shout out to Maysoon. You are an unbelievable human being. I loved your story regarding how you had a dream and just went after it. It took you 20 years to get on General Hospital, but you did it. You don't let your disability define you and you will never let it define you. You are exactly who you want to be. Thank you for being you. And thank you for listening again. Please subscribe, like, or comment on this episode. If you enjoyed it, I appreciate you. I hope you have a great week ahead. And remember, you, me, we are not almost there.